Oh, well, good morning. Merry Christmas to you. I hope you had a great Christmas and uh, just enjoying this uh, really nice time between Christmas and New Year's. It always feels a little bit more relaxed, uh, a little bit more uh, casual, and just the opportunity to hang out with family and friends. Uh, we have uh, been going through a series on the uh, first chapter of the book of John, and so today we're going to finish that series. And so I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, if you would, turn with me to John chapter 1. If you didn't have a Bible, didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the chair in front of you, and uh, you can find this on page 886 in that Bible. You know, if you were here uh, when we began this series at the beginning of December, we began uh, by uh, posing this question, who is Jesus? And in fact, uh, this is a very important question for everyone, whether or not you are a Christian, to really wrestle with and to think about. Uh, Jesus made such bold statements His teachings were so influential, and in fact, uh, he is such a central figure in all of history that everyone at some point or another in their life should spend some significant time to wrestle with this question of who Jesus is and what he claimed to be. And of course, if you're really going to think about it, you should read the accounts of those who knew him personally, because of course, they give us the best testimony of who he was and what he was all about. And so we uh, began by looking at the testimony of the Apostle John. Well, today we're going to end our series by asking another very important question. Again, one that everyone should ask themselves whether or not they are a Christian. And uh, this question is, uh, the question is this, who are you? And by that I mean, what makes you tick? What is it that, that, that gets you up in the morning and gives direction to your day and gives meaning to your life? Uh, what, what is it that causes you and guides you to do the things that you do and to not do the things that you don't do? And when it comes to the, the major crossroads in life, who you're going to marry and what kind of a career you're going to have and where you're going to live, what guides how you choose to make those decisions? But in fact, who you are doesn't just guide those big things. It actually guides the, 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 the regular day-to-day things that we do. Uh, how you spend your free time, who you hang out with, how you treat people. It's important to think about because who you are has a profound effect on how you live this life. But not only on how you live this life, but also it has a profound effect on what you get out of this life. And that, and that becomes a very important for us. You see, not everybody gets the same value out of this life, do they? I mean, just look around. Some people are getting a lot out of this life, and others aren't getting as much as they possibly could. And so when we begin to think about, who am I? Who are you? It helps us to think and to examine our own lives to see if indeed we are living this life to the fullest that we can. Now, the way that we want to examine this question is by examining the life of a man who had a very clear sense of who he was. And that man is John the Baptist. Now, uh, just, just in case it's not clear, John the Baptist is different than John the Apostle. John the Apostle wrote this gospel that we're looking at, but John the Baptist is a different person. So as we're talking about that today, don't get those two confused. We're talking today about John the Baptist. And here's the very first thing that you need to know about John the Baptist. He was a very unique man. I mean, the the man lived in the wilderness. He was a Nazarite, which meant that he uh, didn't cut his hair, didn't shave his beard. So, I mean, he would have had big hair and a massive beard. And not only did he uh, live in the wilderness, he wore uh, clothes made out of camel skins. And uh, he ate locusts and honey. 
So this clearly was not the kind of guy who was following the crowds. In fact, quite the opposite. He was a tough person, very independent-minded. He was like a man's man. And in fact, people were drawn to him. All kinds of people came out to hear what this man had to say. And often when he was done talking, they repented of their sins and were baptized. And because so many people were going and being baptized, the religious leaders began to pay attention to this guy out in the wilderness. And so they suddenly have a very important question for him. And that question is this. John, who are you? What, what, what makes you tick? John, what, what gets you up in the morning and gives meaning and direction to your life? We want to know. And so this story that we're going to look at today uh, is where the, these men come and ask him who he is. And it's the answer that John gives. And he gives us wisdom for thinking about this question in our own lives. So the story is found in verses 19 to 34 uh, of John chapter 1. This is the word of God. It says, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, well, who are you? Uh, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie." These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So, the religious leaders start by coming to John and they're asking him, John, who are you? And in fact, they have some ideas. They come with a list. In fact, listen to how he responds in verses 20 and 21. He says, he confessed and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So these these religious leaders, they have a number of different questions for him. And and they begin uh, uh, with uh, asking him, are you the Messiah? Now, in those days, in Israel, they were under the domination of the Romans. And so when they said to him, are you the Messiah? What they were really asking him is, are you the man who's going to come and bring political and military leadership to our nation so that we can throw off the Roman oppressors? And John's answer to them was, no way, not a chance, never. They said, okay, okay, fair enough. Then are you Elijah? 
Now, the reason why they ask if he's Elijah is because the very last prophet of the Old Testament, a man named Malachi, in his very last prophecy, said these words. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they say to him, look, is that you? Are you Elijah? And again, John says, no, I'm not Elijah. Now, later on, Jesus is going to say, in fact, that John the Baptist was the Elijah that Malachi had prophesied about. But see, John would not ascribe that to himself. If Jesus wanted to say that's who he was, that was up to Jesus. But John would not make himself more than he knew himself to be. And so he says, no, I'm not Elijah. So then they said, well, then are you the prophet? Now, when they asked him if he was the prophet, what they meant is, are you the second coming of Moses? Because you see, back before Moses uh, died, near the end of his life, he made this prophecy. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. So they want to know, John, are you the prophet? Are you the the, the second coming of, of Moses that we're expecting? And again, John's response is simple and clear. No, I am not the prophet. Now, John denies being all of these, uh, these people, which is quite something because it would have been very tempting for him to take on one of those, those titles. They, any one of those titles would have instantly given John not only a great deal of prestige, but actually a lot of real power. People would have listened to him and done what he said. And a lesser man, someone who didn't have such a clear sense of who he was, might have been tempted to take one of those titles. In fact, a lesser person would have allowed the the power of that uh, suggestion of those crowds to define who they were or who they wished that they would be. But not John. And this is the first point that I want us to note from this passage, and that's this. John the Baptist's identity did not come from the crowds. He didn't build his identity based on what the people around him thought he should be. Because crowds are fickle. The crowds are always changing. And anyone who decides to build their identity based on who the crowds are is uh, working with a recipe for disaster. And yet, that today is how so many people decide who they are, who their identity is, by whatever the crowd, whatever the culture around them tells them they ought to be. If the culture says to them, you should think this, they say, okay, I guess I think this. And then if the culture says, well, actually, no, 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 now you should think that, they say, okay, I guess I'll think that. And whichever way the culture goes, that's the way that they go. And in fact, uh, they don't have a very strong sense of who they are. It's like the, they're like the old uh, story of a French revolutionary who was sitting in a, a Paris cafe when a big crowd went rushing by and he jumps up. He says, oh, there goes the mob. I'm their leader. I must follow them. Right? Not, not really a clear sense of who he is. He's not a leader and he's uh, following them, trying to figure out who he is. Uh, those who, who try to build their identity based on the culture will never have a clear sense because the culture is always changing, isn't it? I mean, the things that were unacceptable 20 years ago are now celebrated today. And the things that were celebrated 20 years ago are no longer celebrated today. And that's not going to change. 20 years from now, things that are unacceptable today will be celebrated. And things that are celebrated today will no longer be acceptable. Because our culture continues to change. And those who define themselves by whatever the crowd says 
find that they never have much real sense of personal identity. His story is told of uh, David Lloyd George. He was a prime minister of Britain in the uh, early uh, 20th century. And he was famous for always doing whatever the public opinion polls said. And one of his contemporaries, a man named Lord Keynes, who clearly was not a fan of Lloyd George's, was once asked, what happens when Lloyd George is alone in a room? And his answer was this, when Lloyd George is alone in a room, there is nobody there. And in fact, that's the case for so many people. When the crowd isn't there to tell them who they are, there is no one there. Without the crowd to tell them who they, how they should think and how they should act and what is acceptable and what isn't, they have no deep sense of personal identity. But not John. John the Baptist never would let the crowd define who he was. So, these men say to him, okay, okay, so tell us then, who are you? What are we going to tell these people who sent us? And you know, at this point, John the Baptist could have done what so many others do when they don't want to be defined by the crowd. They say, well, I am not going to be defined by the crowd. And so my identity comes solely from myself. Uh, I determine who I am, what I think, what I believe, and where I'm going in this life. I am my own North Star. I just follow my own inner compass. And I understand that. I mean, look, you know, to be defined by the crowd is, is not a fun thing. And so many people would put their, their, their sense of identity over here. They say, I'm going to find my meaning and my purpose and my direction and my, my goal in life solely in me. And it sounds good in the, in the course of a casual conversation, but if you really begin to think about it, it's a very problematic statement. I mean, think about this. On this planet today, there are 7 billion people alive. And before us, there's hundreds of millions who have lived. And the best person of all of the people who live today or who have ever lived that you can possibly find to give you wisdom and direction and meaning and purpose for your life is you. I mean, if you don't mind me saying, it's a little bit pretentious. Right? I mean, this is, this is on who you're going to build your whole life. If you are self-aware at all, you know that's not necessarily the strongest foundation on which to build your life. And in fact, that's a lot of pressure. It all depends on you and on how you live and on the decisions that you make. And you haven't even lived this whole life yet. And yet many people say, this is how I'm going to define my identity. And yet if you really think about it, very few people actually ever do that. Maybe those who, you know, the odd genius is able to do that. And yet, if you look at their track record, they don't have a great track record for living successful, fulfilled lives. Or the other person who can really do that is the supreme egotist. The one who genuinely thinks that the whole world is really, really, really just about me. But they also don't have a great track record for living a a meaningful and fulfilled life. And yet many people, in an effort not to be defined by the crowds, put themselves over in this category. But John the Baptist, this man who has a very clear sense of who he is, would never dream of putting his identity in this category either. Listen to to what he says when they ask him who he is. Verse 23 says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Now, these guys who came to get an answer from him, they don't understand what he means by this. So instead of stopping and saying, uh, John, excuse us, could you explain that for us? We don't quite get it. 
Instead, they just move right on to ask him why he's doing what he's doing. Look at what, look at what it says in verses 24 and 25. Now, they'd been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? They want to know, why are you doing what you're doing? But now John is going to ignore their second question, because, and he's going to go back to their original question, because how you act, the things that you do, flows out of who you are. So listen to how he responds to them in verses 26 and 27. He says, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John says, look, do you want to know who I am? Do you want to understand why I act the way I do, what makes me tick, gives meaning and purpose in my life? I'll tell you why. It's because the one who is coming after me The one who's coming after me, he says, is the one whose strap of his sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, when he said that, it was quite a statement. You see, in those days, it was understood that if there was a a rabbi, a teacher, and he had, you know, disciples or students, everyone knew that those disciples or students were expected to, to, to serve that rabbi, that teacher in all kinds of ways, in gratefulness for what he was teaching them. So if he needed them to cook a meal or to run an errand or whatever, they were expected to do it. But there was one thing that no student was ever expected to do for his teacher, no matter how greatly he honored him, and that was to bend down and to undo the strap of his sandals. That was considered so demeaning, so low, that only a slave would ever be expected to do something like that. And now John says, the one who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. He says, the one one in whom I find my identity... The one who gives meaning and purpose to my life is not like a guy who's just a little bit ahead of me. Not even a guy who's a long ways ahead of me. The one in whom I find my meaning is a million times greater than I am. I find my identity not in the crowds because they're so fickle. There's no solidness there. And nor in myself because in the end, I'm just a guy. Instead, I find my identity in the highest thing, the greatest thing that I possibly know. And that thing happens to be a person. Here's the second point. John the Baptist's identity was found in someone much, much greater than himself. You see, if you want to find a strong sense of personal identity to guide you through life, and you aren't willing to find it in the fickleness of the crowds, and you understand the inherent weakness of trying to build an identity without reference to anyone but yourself, And the place to look for identity is in someone or something much, much greater than yourself. And that's what John the Baptist did. And out of that identity flowed his whole life, his meaning, his purpose, his calling in life. That's why when they said to him, who are you? He said, well, that's easy. I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. You see, in those days, the roads that they had weren't like ours. They weren't all fancy and paved and smooth. They were, they were rutted and rough. And there was all kinds of obstacles in the way. And when a great king would come to visit his people, the call would go out. Prepare the way. Make straight the way for the king. And John says, that's my purpose. That's my calling in life. To remove the obstacles. To smooth the way. To open people's hearts. To point people to someone who's a million times greater than I am. 
And you know, for all of us who have met that person, who are followers of Jesus, we have the same calling as John the Baptist. Not to live in the wilderness, not to eat locusts and honey, certainly not to be the the physical forerunner of the Messiah, but to point people to Jesus, to help remove the obstacles so that they can meet him, to smooth the way so that they have the chance, the opportunity to just see and understand and really consider for themselves if what Jesus says about him is really true. So that means that whether you're a doctor or a student or a homemaker or a truck driver or whatever it is that you do from day to day, If your identity is found in Jesus, then the underlying purpose of your life, the the thing that guides how you make the big decisions and the little decisions in your life is this question, will what I do point to Jesus or not? But more than that, if your identity is found in someone much, much greater than you, not only does it give you meaning and purpose for all that you do, but it allows you to live very differently than the culture around you. And here again, we see this in the life of John the Baptist. He was out baptizing people. Now, baptism wasn't uncommon in those days. In the Jewish world, it was considered the ultimate form of ritual cleansing. And it was considered by the Jewish people a once and for all ritual cleansing that a Gentile did when they converted to Judaism. But here's the thing about John. John wasn't just baptizing Gentiles. John was baptizing Jews. See, he was, he was telling the people of his day, of his culture, that you are right with God, not just because you're born Jewish, not because of the family you're born in. You, you're not right with God because your parents baptized you as an infant or because they circumcised you uh, or any of those things. You're right with God when you consciously repent of your sins and choose to be right with God. And so he was baptizing both Gentiles and Jews. And the Jewish religious leaders did not like that. And that's why they showed up on the scene saying, John, who are you? What are you doing here? But here's the thing about John. Because he found his his identity in someone who was a million times greater than him or than anyone else, he frankly didn't care what they thought. You see, his actions flowed out of his identity and so he could live very differently than the world around him. And this is so important. You know, when your identity is found in someone so much greater than you are, then you can live differently than the world around you and not care what they think. The world around you is going to ask you, why are you living this way? I mean, why aren't you sleeping with your boyfriend before you get married? Why aren't you taking advantage of our boss like the rest of us do? Why aren't you living large like our society tells us to instead of giving your time and your money to serve the poor and serve in the church? I mean, why aren't you just grasping for everything you can possibly get in this life? And the answer is, because my identity, my purpose in life doesn't come from the culture around me. And it doesn't come from my own sense of self-importance. Rather, it comes from someone who is much, much greater than I am. And you know, the person who has that kind of identity, they can walk through this life with a confidence and with a peace that you simply can't get anywhere else. You know what? That kind of a person has the, uh, the strength of character that they can face strong criticism and not be crushed by it. That kind of a person can wrestle with the questions that inevitably come in midlife about, is my life worth it? Am I doing something of value? Does my life have meaning? They can wrestle with those questions without being cast adrift. 
person with that kind of identity can face the inevitable challenges and strife that will come into everyone's life. They can face it with courage and with strength because their identity is found in someone so much greater than them. But the fact of the matter is, if you have that kind of identity, it's not just to deal with the big things in life, but also with the little things, the mundane things, the boring things, the repetitive part of life that can just suck the life out of you. But those who, who have their identity in someone greater, even those things have meaning and purpose because it's part of something much greater. When your identity is found in someone much greater than you, then you can really engage this life and not be overwhelmed by it, but rather thrive in it. That's what John the Baptist did. He found his identity in someone much, much greater than himself. And for those of us who want a strong sense of personal identity, we should do the same. But that raises a very important question. And I think a very fair question, and that's this. If if our identity is genuinely found in someone or something much greater than, than us, who or what is that something or someone? I mean, what, why should it be Jesus? Certainly there are all kinds of great men and women who have lived throughout history. And of course there are incredibly great causes out there that you could give your life to. So why Jesus? What makes him so much higher or greater than anything or anyone else? Well, you know, the next day after these guys had left, John the Baptist is standing around. He's uh, talking with his disciples and he looks up and he sees Jesus coming towards him. And now he turns to his disciples and he's going to give them three reasons why he's willing to build his life around Jesus. Why there is nothing and no one greater in his world than Jesus. So let's look at those. The first is found in verse 29. It says this. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, for his uh, listeners, for the disciples, that would have been both a startling statement and a familiar statement. Startling because they would have expected him to say, Behold the Messiah who comes to bring uh, freedom to our people and to throw off the Romans. But he doesn't. Instead he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now this idea of the Lamb of God would have been familiar to them. It's a a theme that runs through the Bible, through the Old Testament, and begins with Abraham himself. Uh, Abraham, uh, one day God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, you know that son Isaac of yours, who you love, the son that I gave you? I want you to take that young son up to the top of Mount Moriah, and there I want you to sacrifice him to me. So that's what Abraham does. He takes his son, They go to that mountain. He puts the the, the wood on his son's back. He takes a torch and they begin to climb that mountain. And as they're trudging up that mountain, his son looks to him and says, Father, Father, we have the fire and we have the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says to him, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And when they get to the top of that mountain, he takes the wood and he arranges it all. And he takes his son, whom he loves so much, he binds that son, he puts him down there. And he's about to sacrifice his son to God. And God says, stop, stop, Abraham. I know that you're willing to obey me no matter what you say. Instead, there's a ram, a lamb caught in the thicket over here. And you take that and you sacrifice that in the place of your son, Isaac. It's the first picture of a lamb from God. 
But then later when the Israelites are in Egypt, God sends Moses to free his people and and to cause Pharaoh to let his people go. He sends plague after plague with increasing severity until after nine plagues, Pharaoh still refuses to acknowledge that God is God and still refuses to let the Israelites leave. And so God says, I'm going to send one more plague. I'm going to pass through the land and I'm going to kill the firstborn son in every family. And that night before he comes, Moses commands the people to take a lamb, a perfect lamb, and to slaughter that and to take the blood and to paint it on the doorpost of their home so that when God passes through, he will pass over their home and the plague will not come upon their home. And here again is a picture of a lamb that was slain that was a substitute for those who would have died. And hundreds of years later, the prophet Isaiah picks up on this idea in Isaiah 53. He says this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. You see, all through the Old Testament, there is this theme. That a lamb would pay the price. That it would be the substitute for the sins of the people. And now when John sees Jesus, he points to him and says, see him? See him? That is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. The reason why Jesus is a million times greater than John is because Jesus has come to take the sins of the world upon himself. He's come to die on a cross for our sins, for the punishment that is due to us because we've sinned against God. And you know, because God is a just God, And frankly, everyone wants God to be just, whether you believe he exists or not. You want a God who will punish evil and wrong. Because God is a just God, he must punish sins. But instead of pouring them out on you and I, instead he pours them out on his own son, on the Lamb of God. And John the Baptist says, you want to know the first reason why there is no one and nothing greater in this world than Jesus Because he is the one who made the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. Listen, listen, if you're going to build your identity, your life around someone or something that is much greater than you are, make sure that it isn't just someone who wants to use you for their own ends. There are a great many leaders and a great many causes that would love for you to give your life for them without being willing to give their life for you. If you're really going to build your life around someone much greater than you, then like John the Baptist, you should build it around the Lamb of God who gave his life so that you could have life. It's the first reason that John gives for why there is no one and nothing greater than Jesus. But now listen to the second reason. It's in verses 32 and 33. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John says, look, I'm baptizing you with water. Water is an outward sign of an inward change in your heart. But when Jesus comes, he's not going to baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, why is this important? Well, you see, when when Jesus comes and he baptizes you with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God himself. And he... When you give your life to Jesus on that day, he enters into your life and God himself comes and dwells in you. 
And God himself gives you the strength to live this life, to change, to be transformed, to live the way God calls you to live. In fact, later in John 16, verse 7, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper. You know, when we are baptized by the Holy Spirit, then rather than us living this life in our own strength, the Holy Spirit gives us the strength that we need. He causes us to live with confidence and with perseverance and with boldness and with determination. And he gives us the strength to change, to end a life filled with sin and to more and more be transformed into the image of Jesus. And he gives us the power to be his witnesses in a pretty dark world that desperately needs a savior. But his power, this helper, only comes through Jesus when we give our lives to him. And that's the second reason John gives why he says, I'm willing to build my life and my identity and my meaning on Jesus. And here's why. Because Jesus is the source of the greatest power in a person's life. If you're looking for the power to genuinely change, if you really want to have true peace and real perseverance in your life and real meaning, you just can't do that on your own. But it can be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And who wouldn't want that kind of power? John builds his life around Jesus because through him comes the greatest power that a person could possibly have, the power to change. But then he gives one more reason. A third and final reason why there is no one and nothing greater than Jesus. And that's found in verse 34. He says this. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John says, here's the third reason why I find my identity in Jesus. Because he's not just a great person in history. There are many great people in history. He says, no, no, no. He's so much more than that. This man is the son of God. This is the God man himself. He says, I give my life to him, not because I'm following another man, but because this is God himself come down to live among us. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? Because Jesus is God himself in the flesh, come to rescue us. The Apostle Paul explains it this way. He says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then he makes this incredible statement. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. There it is, the God-man, fully God, fully human, all of God, right there. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You see, Jesus isn't just another great man who lived in history. No, no. He is the God man who came to reconcile us to God so we could have peace with God. So we could find meaning and fullness in this life. And the things that he did and the way that he lived and the things that he taught and above all, his death and his resurrection. Point to the fact that Jesus is the God man. And so there is no one and nothing greater than him. And if you want to find a true sense of identity, if you want a, a clear sense of meaning and purpose in your life, there is no one and nothing better that you could find it in than in Jesus. But here's the thing if you do that, he will demand that you give him everything, that you genuinely find your meaning and your purpose in him. But if you do that, he will give you a fullness and a, and a beauty in this life that you simply can't get anywhere else. So here it is. If you want a sense of purpose, direction, you can go with the culture around you. Many people do. You just have to be willing to kind of sway wherever it goes. 
You can also try and, and find it all in yourself. That's a tough thing to do. And, and most people fail miserably at it in the end. But you can try that. Or you can find it in someone so much greater than you. And find a deep sense of meaning and purpose there. It's a very uh, interesting story told about the great conductor Arturio Toscanini. One evening, Toscanini conducted uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And it was a brilliant performance. And at the end, the crowd went wild. I mean, they, they cheered, they clapped, they, they whistled, they stomped their feet. And the ovation went on and on. And Toscanini turned to the, to the audience and he bowed. And he bowed again. And he bowed a third time. And he acknowledged his, his orchestra. And the ovation went on and on. And finally, when it, when it bowed down, uh, when, it, when it, uh, it slowed down, he turned back to his, his, his orchestra and he leaned in and he was almost out of control and he whispered, gentlemen, gentlemen. And his orchestra leaned forward. They wanted to hear what he had to say. He said, gentlemen, I am nothing. Which is quite a statement because the man had a pretty big ego. And he said, and gentlemen, gentlemen, you are nothing. But Beethoven, Beethoven is everything, everything, everything. And this man, on the night of his greatest success, realized that his success, his, his identity, who he was, was not because he was so great, but because somebody else was much greater. And that one was Beethoven. And how much more is that the case for we who find our, our identity and truly understand who Jesus is? In the end, he is everything, everything, everything. And we, by his grace, find our lives and our meaning and our true success only and always in him. Would you join me and stand for closing prayer? Hmm. Well, let's pray. Our God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. God, how good of you that you would send your very own son to come and to be for us the Lamb of God, the one who would, who would give his life for the punishment that was due to us. God, we thank you that not only that, but that in him we find meaning and purpose, a deep sense of identity for how to live this life, guidance and direction. Father, it isn't just all on us, that we don't have to figure it out and that we're not just blown here and there by whatever the crowds do. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And God, as we, as we enter a new year, as we come to this coming year again, God, we, we commit again that we will follow him all the days of our life. God, that we will give our hearts and our lives to do what he calls us to and what he commands us to because in him comes fullness of life. In him is abundant life. In him is the meaning and direction for all that we do. So God, we thank you this day for Jesus and we bless you for him and we give our lives to him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, Lord bless you. Have a good day.